0: Party people in the place to be is the BKMC Talib Kweli. This is another edition of People's Party. How y'all doing? As you see, I'm in another remote location. I have changed trap houses. I feel like I'm about to take a mugshot, but it's all good. We are doing (laughs) what we got to do. Give it up to my lovely and talented co-host Jasmine Lee in the place to be.
1: What's up, Jasmine? What's up? We're twinning today. I know. You trying to be like me with the glasses. You trying to be like me with the burgundy, so there we go. Shit. But we
0: in tune, we in tune. It's good to see you even digitally or social distancing or whatever. Today's episode, I'm very excited about this gentleman is a friend of mine. He is and he has become a household name just from his work. He started out as an iconic pitch man. That's really where people got to know him at first. Um, He was on one of the best comedy shows of all time in the original cast of Mad TV He's a writer and an actor. He's been a part of some of the most iconic black television shows of all time. I'm talking about A Different World. I'm talking about Rock. I'm talking about the Sinbad show, the Bernie Mac show. Damn. Everybody hates Chris. Like if you black, you have seen this motherfucker perform before. You understand what I'm saying? His IMDB is crazy. He was a straight up God, God body status on American gods. He got a new project coming out that I'm very excited about. The good Lord Bird. Me and this brother had made music together. And, man, I, I have so many good things to say about this man. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the homie Orlando Jones in the place to be. Woohoo!
2: Hey, what, 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 what? <laughs> Thank you, man. Much, much love, man. Much love. Good to be here. Happy to be here.
0: How you doing, Orlando?
2: I can't call it. Crazy times, man. Crazy times. Good to see Yay. you, brother. Good to see you. Yeah, I got you to too. do
0: your, uh, your podcast a couple of days ago. I was very happy about that. That was a good good situation for me.
2: Yeah, man, Um, thank you. Thank you for doing that.
0: Of course, whatever you need. Um, You seem to have cracked the code on self-reliance and Black ownership early in your career. Like You started out with Homeboy Productions, a production company in which one of your first gigs was doing a a commercial for McDonald's for the the McJordan. You know what I'm saying? So before you even got (laughs) known as an actor or as a writer, you came up with this production company. Um, What was the science behind that?
2: Um, dude, it was so simple. I mean, I was in college, you know, broke a joke trying to make ends meet and do what I could do. And I would work on these local industrial films and commercials. And uh, I realized very quickly that the ideas that I was pitching is what they were shooting. Mm-hmm. But they were, you know, paying me twenty five dollars an hour and I'd, you know, I'd leave with three, four hundred dollars and think I'd made some money. And I was mm-hmm. sitting in the office after I'd pitched a bunch of commercials and I saw three point six million, one point eight million, two point five million, and five point five million and every one of those things was my ideas and I had five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. I thought I was rich. I went, took that money, hired a lawyer, incorporated and started basically doing my own business at that point, because I quickly realized anything else was, was really chattel slavery disguised.
0: Right. Right. We're just So
2: I was, I was like, I'm out. So that really became it. I understand there's a cost always going in, and you got to pay that cost. But as soon as I realized, all I got to do this is one time, and then we can get back to real business, and then let me try and be that dude. So that's really where it started. But it was, I was just hungry, you know, Black, Southern kid, didn't know nobody in Hollywood, didn't know the game, but I just thought I would learn business and that would help me, you know, push myself forward.
0: Now you're from Alabama, right?
2: Born in Alabama. See, my father's a basketball coach, right? So- mm-hmm. Didn't he Mobia... play for
0: the Phillies too, though?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. See, I'm, a, I'm a baseball
0: dude. Like, that's very impressive to me.
2: Uh, so, oh, so sidebar, professional mm-hmm. sports is the family business. Every male mm-hmm. on my dad's side of the family played professional sports. So wow. when so when I said I wanted to be an actor, they called a family meeting to shut the situation <laughs> down. So my uncle Lamar calls me, he says, Need you to come over to the house. Me and Larry need to talk to you. I walk in the door and he's talking as loud as he can. Uh your daddy say your, <laughs> your daddy say you won't be an actor. That what that what your daddy say. Your daddy mm-hmm. say, uh, you going to California. If that's right. something you need to tell me, boy. If that's some information I need to know about you. Yeah, Everybody we all know when people, cool. when people, some
0: people down south in Alabama think of them Hollywood types. Exactly, exactly. So,
2: you know, that's, that's kind of my path. So mm-hmm. I always felt like, you know, athletes sometimes get... They get the wrong rap, you know, uh, because we even, you know, brand these black men as being dumb and ignorant and, you know, not really understanding anything. But it was it was those guys that people saw that way that taught me to use that as a power. You know, it's like, oh, they don't they don't know you. They can't see you. Good. (laughs) No doubt. So um, I always saw it that way. And, you know, and, you know, I'm a product of those black men and those black women. And I've just tried to keep that 100 and pass that on to anybody I I, I meet along (laughs) the way.
1: Uh, your mother forced you to see Star Wars when you're younger, right? <laughs> well, let's get to and, it. I yeah, yeah, you thought Star Wars. The, we know Talib, we know. You <laughs> thought the name was Whack, but you loved it in the end, and you also, you wrote uh, Star Wars fan fiction. How do you feel about the Star Wars, where the Star Wars universe is headed now?
2: You know, I'm happy that they try them, but disappointed that they still don't understand. Um, you know, it was it was troubling to me to watch the way they handled the female Jedi situation. And suddenly she's a nursemaid to the other characters. And hello, Raquel. My daughter, Raquel, is rolling in hey, heavy right now.
1: Hey, hello. Raquel. What hey, Raquel. How are you, Raquel, how you
2: doing? For me. Mhm. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes, Thank
0: absolutely. You. Thank
2: you. So as soon as I'm done, I'll knock it out. Will you go grab it from the bathroom so it's ready when I'm done? Oh, I love this. So I, from the I thought you wanted the band-aid. No, for this. Pull scratched me. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So, Paloma's losing a mind. You were playing. Go grab the Brave Soldier, please. Okay. It's in the bathroom underneath the cabinet, the same place wow. where I used the band-aid for your foot. Okay. All right? All right, Thank you.
1: Oh, that my future life.
0: Oh. <laughs> Jasmine's pregnant uh, right now.
2: Oh my goodness! Listen, girl, I was braiding hair this morning. I fully understand.
1: <laughs> oh, you were braiding hair. Oh, my uh, boyfriend needs to learn too.
2: I'm a single dad, you know, with with two sisters. You know, my my nine year old Raquel and my three year old Paloma. That's that's my heart, and my soul. That wow. that's what that's what moves me forward. That's that's really for me. That's really what it's about. So, and they're gorgeous. I mean, I don't. I lucked mm-hmm. up. I mean, I'm I'm so blessed. Um, and I forgot what you was asking me, so I apologize. <laughs> oh, we were talking about Star Wars. Oh, we were talking
0: about Star, Wars. You, were talking Star Wars. you were talking about the female uh, yeah,
2: character. Yeah, so, so, I mean, they set up a female Jedi. They set up like a G, right? Mm-hmm. And then the next film, suddenly she's like trying to talk through what's happening with dudes. It was just very strange to see that mm-hmm. transition. Mm-hmm. I still think at the end of the day, if the author of the story is not of color... That doesn't understand if the producers, if the voices who have final say Mm -hmm. do not understand the experience, then casting Mm -hmm. alone is not diversity. That's placating. So I respect that they've they've made the placating moves. I don't Mm -hmm. respect that they haven't widened the voices, and you can clearly see that because the point of view of the film is still the point of view of science fiction in the future through a white male perspective. Yeah, shout out to John Boyega, by the way. Shout Gotta out to John. Yes. And and look yeah. how real hold on. and look how real he is. If they had even yeah. leaned towards a little bit of that, look look at how he might have come to life on screen rather than the yeah. box you got him in. And he's murdering it in the box.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. His character, everything about his character is is, is way more interesting to me. Dude, I, I what I do like about the JJ a- Abrams era of Star Wars is especially in the, the Rogue One, they mm-hmm. you know they were, they were straight up terrorists, bro. Like the rebels went from just it went from like just static good versus evil to like, yo, the yes. rebels had to do some violent, fucked up shit to be yes. rebels. You know I mean? Like
2: I like that part of it. Yeah, and, yeah, and I yeah. also do feel like the relaunch really felt like the same movie with new technology. I felt yeah, you know I mean, what yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, It was exactly. the same
0: story essentially. Like A- exactly. That, that, yeah, that, that first one that JJ did, was just when you watch it back to back, which I've done. It's the same exact story. I'm like, okay. That's just,
2: exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: So um, I don't want to you know, I don't
2: want to rob that, but by the same token, I think that has to be put forth, you know. Uh exactly. so they, you know. So I just try to put it forth.
0: <laughs> now tell me about the time yeah. in your life when you became so famous for doing the seven up ads, because we had Godfrey on, and he's part of the legacy. It starts with Jeffrey Holder, right? Mm-hmm. And then it goes to you, and then yep. it's Godfrey. So tell me about that time in your life.
2: It was so strange, man, because it took you know, I worked 12 days on that campaign and four of them were spent doing uh, radio ads. So it was eight days of my life. So it was really a bizarre sort of things. Like suddenly I was walking down the street eight and days. people would just start yelling, seven up, like out of no way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> and you know like, my, my first reaction was like, what? What's popping? Like, I wasn't really sure. I'm like, oh, you all talking to me. So. Right. It, it, was, it was funny to have it blow. And it was funny to see where they had targeted because, you know, it was a weird thing. Like that wasn't the campaign slogan. They had seven up. It's what's up or seven up. Drink it up. And the mm-hmm. the guy who was the president of seven up at the time was this real southern dude. And uh, yeah, see, I'm, his, I'm
0: from the I'm from the
2: Uncola era. The, the, oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, the, un, the Uncola. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jeffrey <laughs> Jeffrey's a legend. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. You Know the costume guy for the Wiz, you know what I mean? Right. Like a fixture, in I, and I was in the Broadway. Wiz. You what? know that, yeah, Wait, you were in know the that.
1: Wiz?
0: yeah. When Lena Horne is singing, my grandfather Stanley Green plays uh, Uncle M. And when the scene at the when the baby is crying and the, the checkers fall over, that's my little yeah. brother Jamal Green. And then when what? Lena Horn is singing, uh, the ba- they got the babies hanging up in the back, yeah. I'm
1: Oh, my God, it's one of my favorite movies, (laughs) Tala. What? What I had to go watch it over and point you out. Listen. That's amazing.
2: Dude, I got a real connection. I did it with Ashanti in New York uh, at City Center. uh, And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful, you know, Sheena Arnold. And, you know, it just, you know, my goodness. I didn't mean to
0: derail your story with a quick tidbit from my life. No, no,
2: all good. (laughs) 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 Nah, please, man. It's always been, at least for me, it was an opportunity to open things up. It was crazy. People were yelling at me all of a sudden. Um, mm-hmm. And you get a clear sense of what the truth is, right? Commer- More people see commercials than see television shows. Mm-hmm. More people see television shows than see movies. At right. the time, I didn't know that, right? <laughs> I got like a crash course in it real, real quick. So it was it was crazy. Yeah, man, it ran for one year. And... Uh, ended up winning a bunch of awards. And all I really did was go to John uh, and say, I think it should be, you know, seven up yours. Mm. And he was like, why? And I was like, cause you're trying to reach young people. And I'm from a young person. It's all about rebel culture. I'm trying to define mm. myself against the powers to be. So I don't understand mm. how what's up and drink it up. Make no sense. It should be up yours. And I was laughing and I was like, that's the way I want to do it. <laughs> and he said, He was a southerner, so this is all I can tell you, my favorite part of this whole story. He said, you know, I go out there on the golf course, my friend. And I tell them what these here ad executives say, and they look at me like I got four freaking heads. And I, I, I told them about that up yours thing, and they just laughed and laughed. And I think we're going to go on that up yours thing, and that's pretty wow. much how that happened, and you know, the rest was history. So I, I, I give it up for him for not recognizing it, bucking it, and believing in me. You know what I mean? No doubt.
1: Talk to me about Max tv uh, This show is super historic, one of the best sketch shows that have happened. Um, if you would say that uh, "Live in Color" was the blackest sketch show, and then uh, what is it? "Kids in the Hall" was the whitest sketch show. Where did you f- <laughs> feel that Mad TV <laughs> fell in that uh, spectrum?
2: We were the wildest. We we were we were a wild crew. I got I got a lot of trouble. I got cussed out three times on Mad TV behind a sketch. And one of them got banned. Three heavy ones, though. I got I did a sketch called Schindler's uh, Lost uh, (laughs) about
0: my parents. They
2: (laughs) (laughs) They were, you know, they shot it and then they were like, no, no, no. And they pulled it. Uh, And and, um, I got in trouble for doing uh, Cosby's crib and uh, and making fun of how the media treated Bill Cosby and that they said he wasn't black enough. Uh, oh. So he finally responded to their criticisms by doing the most ghetto show he could mm-hmm. possibly do. And then they called him a stereotype. So that was basically mm-hmm. he loses his mind. So that was. <laughs> yeah. So I got in a little trouble for that because Bill wanted to make sure that I was making fun of the media and not him. Uh, and, <laughs> and then I pissed off Eddie Murphy when I had him as a waiter and uh in a Chinese restaurant and he's waiting on Spike Lee and Spike Lee's doing the Eddie Murphy story, but he's cast himself in the lead role. <laughs> 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 so I was excited because I was a Mad TV fan. I was excited because, you know, to be on that show after having read that magazine was a really big deal for me. But we were just doing, I was trying to push the envelope because that's what Mm -hmm. Mad Magazine was about. So I just kept getting in trouble every time I did it. But I thought that was the whole point. And not to do it, it didn't even make sense to be on Mad TV. So Right. You know, after mm-hmm. two years of getting clubbed in the head every time I pushed the envelope, I was like, I, if what y'all want is cute, then please call somebody else. I, I didn't sign right. up for that. So that's mm-hmm. why I left. I was the first cast member to leave. Um, wow. Yeah. And you I came back mean, just
0: to, to celebrate, the I think, the 200th episode. But yeah. yeah. You were out pretty early. Yeah.
2: I was out at the end of I did two seasons and I also had a business dispute with them that was kind of on the low, which was really they wanted. I wrote in first season. I was the only cast member that was a writer and an actor on the show. This
0: is a recurring theme for you as a a writer.
2: (laughs) Well, right. Well, because what they want me to do always is Mm -hmm. they want me to write for free. Like they were Mm -hmm. happy to take all my material and use it and do all that. But in season two, they wanted the writer money back because they knew they could hire three writers for what they were paying me. So it was really about the executive producers being like, he's making too much money. We're using his work, but he's somehow a threat to me. So because of that, Mm -hmm. they were like, we want to keep your writing money. And I was like, nah, I'm a Writer's Guild member. Why are you asking me to go against my gill? You wouldn't ask one of these white dudes to go against the gill. I was like, you know yeah. what? I'm not trying to blow the spot up. Why don't I go my way? You go your way. And that's the like, come. they couldn't come after me because they broke the bounds the of my contract by mm-hmm. not paying me the money that they owed me. And the gift I got out of that was I could walk away.
1: I think it's very important to take stands like that in Hollywood, because a lot of times they uh, treat actors and writers as they do. Athletes Or just shut up and, and work. I mean, just shut up and just be happy you have a job and you need to really show them that. No, I'm more than just that.
2: And your representation tells you to do that because there's a system in place and you're supposed to go along with the system and not bucket. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, to be fair, my representation could have cared less. And he was like, nah. And we out. <laughs> right, right. So I was fortunate that in the very early days, I had that type of representation who who completely understood that it was a violation of my rights. And he was like, and I'll tell him, so let's just move on. Um, right. So, yeah. but that education, man, they don't teach anybody that anymore. They tell you to, you know, duck, play the game. And, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, that's really what they do. And they're also hiring with that in mind very much now. They're, they look for people who are, Controlled in the
0: sister. You damn mm. rebel rouser! Hey, <laughs> hey <do you laughs>
2: I'm a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I want to talk about your film work because you've been in some of my favorite films, and you've worked with directors and people that I really respect and admire. And you're part of my, you know, like I grew up watching you. So I want to start talking about your role as the Vibe magazine salesman in Mike Judge's (laughs) office space because you're playing a character that doesn't exist anymore. Ain't no more magazine door-to-door, ex-drug dealer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ex-drug dealer (laughs) imbezzlers. Right,
1: right, right, right.
2: Um,
0: Tell me how you got that role, and then you worked again with Mike Judge on King of the Hill.
2: Yeah, I met Mike uh, because I was pitching a show called uh, Cleavis and Blackhead. I wanted to do... Uh, <laughs> and for, people, for people who don't know, Mike Judge
0: is also the creator of Beavis and, and Butt-Head.
2: <laughs> and yeah. I pitched it to him because I had a whole backstory about those two characters. Mm-hmm. uh and their world because i was a hip-hop head you know and, and mm-hmm. it was new york hip-hop so the whole thing was about getting those mixtapes from uh you know tj swan and Maxim three funky four plus one more mm-hmm. you know and all of that madness that was new york hip-hop oh, you know DJ your shit back in the day yeah no i'm real with it so yeah. <laughs> so I, I you know i was buying you know enjoy 12 inches from i used to order them directly from sugar hill and enjoy like that's how i DJed back in the day so I mm-hmm. took those characters and created that and Judge and I became friendly and he hit me up when he was doing Office Space and was like, yo, you should uh, check out this character and tell me what you think. And I read it and I was like, this is my niece. This is my little niece right here. Because she, right. se- she hated selling cookies. So mm. she wouldn't look you in the eye. She'd like, do you want some cookies? from God cookie on I cook it. Right. You know, <laughs> it's just to make me laugh, like my attitude. And I was like, that's right. the character. I see it's, it. That's, his hu- that's yeah. right. That's his hustle is that yeah. he, he plays that game and he gets in the door and then it flips. How many magazines, you know, how many subscriptions of Vibe do you want? Right. So, <laughs> right, right. right. And that was really it. And Mike, Mike was just cool. He was he he was like, yo, that's hilarious. Do whatever you want. And I was like, I need one more thing. I need my face to be much, much blacker than my neck. I need it when you yeah, look at this dude. I, I was
0: Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up because I've watched this movie many, many times and I thought you just had been on vacation or something. Like I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, I know this nigga
2: is not that dark, but in this movie, he's extra crispy. I don't know what it is. Because if you, because, look, in my work as an actor, one of the things I really focus on is not just, um, not just the character in a, in, a, in a, oh, I'm playing this character way. Because pigment plays such a huge role in the black man's life. And, and the paper bag test is a really real thing because of how much that impacted education and so many other things. So I know that if you walking around as a door to door salesman doing that work for real and you got on that long sleeve shirt, your hands and your face is black. But yeah. your body is an entirely different color because you're not that dark, but you're out there in the sun every day. So it is what it is. And I wanted that to be a part of the character because that's a part of the humans who do that work. And to show up at the door looking all Hollywood fresh, you know what I mean? (laughs) Makeup perfect, you know, lighting perfect. I'm like, that's not that black man. That's not his reality. He's not less than. He ain't going to never see himself. And I was one of those kids that was running around in the sun like that. Like, I used to get crazy black. So. I didn't know black people who didn't go through bunches of different shades through the summer and the winter because that's what you do in the South mm-hmm. when it's ninety-five degrees outside.
1: Mm-hmm. So right, I didn't, right,
2: right. you know, I didn't know these Hollywood dudes that somehow were all the same complexion all the time. I was like, I don't even know how y'all. <laughs> these are ma- magicians. So I don't know what's. I don't even know what that was. So I wanted right. that to be a part of the character, and I try and stick it in all of my characters where I really do look at what shade that character is when I play them.
0: Now, my favorite character you ever played uh, was uh, Diggs McCaffrey in Say this Isn't So. <laughs> That's my favorite one. That movie went straight to video. Yeah, and I it's... think the reason why it went straight to video is because the Farrelly brothers made a movie about uh, a, a brother having sex with a sister. Straight and you didn't up. really understand th- the plot twist unless you saw the movie, which That's I right. think didn't help the movie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but, um, could, they pull the plug. I mean, yeah, man. Like, Diggs McCaffrey, the... The cocaine fueled, no <laughs> no legs having, pilot airplane pilot, like how much of that was improv? How much of that was in the script?
2: It's it's a lot of improv, uh, mm. and it's got you know it's got some script components because those guys, the Swallow Brothers, are some funny dudes, uh, but uh, they kind of let me play with him, man. I, he was one of my favorites, man. I loved him yeah, because he's a fool. He's a fool, man. Man, I can uh, watch that movie all the time, <laughs> <laughs> all the time. I just, um, you know, I fought for that role, and, you know, it was crazy because it was it was down to me or Bill Murray, and I just mm-hmm. couldn't even fathom what that was going to be, and they, they, they literally pulled the plug on it in the 11th hour because, like you said, marketing was <laughs> like, we can't market a movie about a guy <laughs> right. sleeping with his sister, like, can't be right. done. And they were, <laughs> they were
0: coming off of um, something about Mary, so it was supposed to be a big, huge hit,
2: right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That, and that, that was the reason to fight for it. Right. So yeah. after all really of that, funny. I, it's, it's funny. It's crazy funny. So, yeah, Dick McCaffrey is one of my favorite. I fly a <laughs> monkey. He's like, I flop a monkey's ass if the money. Right. Uh. Right. Right.
0: Now, um, you were also in Biker Boys, which some people have considered a predecessor to Fast and the Furious. But for me, just the actors in it, Lawrence Fishburne, Derek Luke, like the, that movie is so black, man. Uh, tell me about the experience working on that movie.
2: I give that to Reggie Rock Bythewood and uh, and Gina Prince. Um, You know, Reggie and I met when I was writing on A Different World. I remember the day he saw Gina when they were new writers, and he was like her. Uh, And they've been together ever since. Um, You know, Reg really wanted to do that. He was focused on that. He really wanted to put together something that felt like those Oceans movies. It felt like those Soderbergh movies when you really had a who's who of black actors yeah telling a story about you know um something that was really close to reggie which was his broken relationship with his father Mm. um and he was you know always writing about that relationship and trying to help other young men who he knew out there particularly black men he's a brooklyn dude um Mm. who had that relationship and never saw themselves in any way represented so reggie Mm. hit me up and he was like yo man i'm having a problem getting my movie made they told me if i make it white they'll give me 60 million they say it's black Mm. they'll give me 20 million Mm-hmm. um will you come on and i was like i'm in and that was that mm-hmm. and then fish jumped on and it was kind of all history from there man I'm, I'm i'm proud of the fact that we were able to show black biker clubs as not gangs i'm i'm proud of the fact that uh, reggie got to tell that story and i'm um i'm really i'm happy to be proud of that because you know, black biker clubs are a huge part of the African-American community and they right. shined over and they get talked about like they're gang members. But when the community is mm-hmm. in peril, it's a lot of them brothers to show up when the police don't to try and hold you down. So I just have deep respect for the Brothers of the Sun and and all those biker clubs who rode with us during that movie. And mm-hmm. and, and we continue to ride with them afterwards. So and they you know, we was in the clubhouses, man. That was one of my best One of my best times off camera, on camera, just on a film was with Jim and that crew and Lorenz and just, you know, Eric LaSalle and, you know, and Sally. It was just the hang was crazy real. Terrence Howard, it was it was a beautiful time. I'm real proud of that Mm -hmm. one.
1: Uh, Drumline, which is one of my favorite movies because I was in band and I went to HBCU. Hey. Yes. Go, go, fam, you shout out. Uh, it highlights uh, black college drum lines and wrestles with making black music audience friendly. Um, looking back, how did you feel doing that movie? What did it mean to you?
2: I mean, for me, they were trying to get me to do Like Mike at the time, and I didn't want to do I oh, love
1: that one, too. With, with a little Bow Wow?
2: Yeah. 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 Oh, OK. And I I was like, look, man, style Marching Bands are part of African-American history. I know yes. Dr. White. You know, my father mm. coached at Florida State. I used to run around with I'm my, my Florida cameras. State. Oh, okay, well, then you know what it is. You know what a fish shack is and right around from the campus. So that was my stomping ground, stealing drumsticks and running around and seeing Dr. White and watching the Rattlers. And, you know, I, that that's a part of how I grew up. And for me, you know, being my father coached at South Carolina State, homecoming, you know, a Hampton, the four corners of the universe, I grew up there. You know, that's where yeah. I'm from, right? And so I was like a magic tennis shoe movie, no disrespect and an opportunity to put show style marching game, black universities. And what I know in a way that school days didn't do it on the map. Yes. It was just, it was, there was a no choice for me. And I just wanted to make Dr. Lee Miles Davis. I wanted him to be about his musicianship because so mm-hmm. many, there ain't no seventies. There ain't no Commodores. There, there's none of that. There's no Isley brothers unless they're mm-hmm. show style marching bands. So, mm-hmm. and, and those instructors who taught those students so as a black kid from the south and 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 my friendship with dallas austin and that was dallas's life except it was in high school you know that's Dallas. that's dallas austin's life taken from high school to college so everything that was about that movie everything that is atlanta and pulling that forward and dallas and i realizing our parents knew each other before we knew each other when we were babies our parents knew each other because my father coached at Carver High School in Columbus, Georgia, and Dallas is from uh, uh, Columbus, Georgia. So, drumline for me is um, was just you know I, I tried to make it my love letter to my people, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I hope it came off that way.
0: Right up, uh, my manager Corey, my ex manager Corey Smith started his career. He went to Morehouse and met Dallas Austin. But he started his career working with Dallas. They, they worked at Rowdy Records back in the day. Yeah,
2: together. yeah. Um, and Rowdy's now, back.
0: <laughs> Rowdy's back. Right yeah. now. Um. The Nancy story. There is a 1968 cartoon of a Nancy the spider that I grew up oh, watching. Me right? too. Everybody, all black people did, I think. So exactly. Th- for for us, that a the spider story is one of the first things that comes into our consciousness as black people, and it's the mm-hmm. first one of the first things that connects us with our African traditions. Absolutely. Um, It's a very powerful story. Now, Neil Gaiman uh, wrote a Nancy into his American Gods thing and you got to play the character. Um, Your speech when you first showed up as Mr. Nancy, which is a uh, a version of this Nancy the Spider character, right? Your speech in American Gods went viral back when it came out. And I watched it just because I was a fan of Neil Gaiman, but I didn't know you were in it when I watched it. And so when you popped up on the screen, right, I was like, oh, okay, slave ship. Oh, there's Orlando. Okay, oh, this is interesting. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, this is interesting. And then the things that you said, I was like, I had never seen nothing like that on TV before, bro. And I understand why I went viral. And then in the era of George Floyd, in the era of Breonna Taylor, in the era of Ahmaud Arbery, this speech that you did in this TV show, as a Nancy the Spider, telling these black slaves, like, telling them that they're going to be called black, and that's what they call you, and that's the, that's the nice name that they call you, right? Mm-hmm. This speech now resonates in this era of righteous anger, when the people rose up in the streets, and this anger got shit done. I've seen changes mm-hmm. in our community that voting for years has not gotten done. Removal right. of Confederate flags, the NFL saying, you know what, black lives do matter, and we apologize. Um, mm-hmm. certain, just, just a, those are just the Minneapolis City Council saying, you know what, maybe we should defund the police. Um, tell me about why you feel like that character resonated so much and why, is it, why we had to wait so long to see a character like that.
2: Because we're not victims and that's how we're seen. Uh, mm. the, the, the narrative around us is consistently about a, a victim narrative, a victim story. So mm-hmm. how do you expect people to break through from the trappings of the cults that they're in if mm-hmm. all you ever do is show them how they'll be rewarded if they stay in them? Victims. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just, I wanted that character. I wanted to play that character like you. I grew up with that character. I was tweeting mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman like, hey, hey, holler at your boy. And, mm-hmm. and I was glad that it worked out. But for me, I've heard that said so many times, but I just was trying to figure out how do you say this to people who don't know what they're about to walk into and what, mm. does that, what does that look like? And for me, more than anything, Anansi is not apologizing and he's mm. not there to save you. He's simply there to tell you what it is and receive his worship. And the greatest worship right. is for you to kill yourself <laughs> in his name. Right. And for me, for me, that juxtaposition because it's it's exactly that that's killing us. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's that little turn right there. So for me, for that to be the central part of, of what my work was going to be, it was, I just, you know, I kind of leaned into that in a, in a heavy way and was fortunate enough to end up writing the next speech that went viral. Uh, right. And so it, it was, you know, it's been a journey, that character.
0: Now this is where the story gets interesting to me because uh, I've heard you speak, I heard you on the Black, uh, Black Nerd podcast speaking about, how you took what was written and made it your own for that first speech that went viral. But in season two, in episode four, now you have a Nancy talking, Mr. Nancy talking to the other black gods. And mm-hmm. you wrote that speech. And I've heard you, and that, that speech went viral while you were fired from the show, but people didn't know you were fired from the show. Exactly. Right? And so... You then made a you then you went viral with this character three times. <laughs> you then made a you made a video explaining the situation. And 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 I'd like you to tell the story because you could tell it better than I can. But apparently the new showrunner, and you 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 heard on set that the new showrunner didn't like the didn't like the politics of Mr. Nancy and didn't like the message that he was giving to black people. And the new showrunner might have felt like as a non-black person, he could write for black characters better than you or better than black
2: people. Oh, no, he absolutely felt that way. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the, so here's- You could go ahead and name him too. Like, so we know know, who he (laughs) is. Chick Egley, Chick (laughs) Egley is this man. So so I'm gonna run it down real quick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so I come in, I do Mr. Nancy, the speech goes viral. The show is well-received. Brian Fuller Mm -hmm. and Michael Green deserve a lot of credit because they're the authors of that first speech. Great mm. writers, um, happy to do it. When we got to season two, suddenly they were gone, they have been fired, new showrunners in, and they don't care at all about the characters of color, so suddenly Mr. Nancy's a completely different character, but nobody had talked mm. to me. So the next mm. thing I know, Neil Gaiman comes up to me, we're shooting, and he's like, listen, we, ha- we don't have a character Bible for this character. Will you write a character Bible and help us shape this character? And, and I break said, that
0: no. down, break down a character Bible, because I've heard you speak on so, this before, but the people so, do
2: So whenever you see a character on a television show, generally that that writer has come up with a story for that character, where that character came from, what's important to that character, how that character fits the story. So the backstory, right? Mm -hmm. So what he was saying was we are now filming season two after a two-year hiatus between season one and season two. So we have kept you out of work for two years waiting for you to come back to this show. And now that you're here, I am telling you that we did not do any work in two years on your character. So we would like you to start writing us, helping us understand how to write your character. So Mm -hmm. I write the Bible and I give it to him. And he says, this is incredible. Share this around with all the producers. But in the meantime, we're still filming the show. So I start Mm -hmm. writing all of the other characters, but I'm not just writing the black characters. I'm writing the female characters that are white, I'm writing the Asian Mm -hmm. female characters, I'm writing the LGBTQ plus Muslim gay characters, I'm writing the black characters, I'm I'm writing the bulk of the the people on the show working a lot with my man Rodney Barnes. And the truth of it is, I ended up getting, helping him get season two done, but at the end of season two it was me and Rodney Barnes. Everybody else had been fired by and large on the writing staff. So Mm -hmm. I produced that show. And it was the Mm. Writers Guild that made them give me a producing credit and a writing credit. So Mm. they had already promised, of course you're going to be a producer on season three. Thank you so much for getting season two done. Thank you for all the work you did. Thank you for figuring out the season finale. Because I wrote the season finale with Rodney Barnes. So it was very bizarre to have them be like, oh, we changed creative directions. I'm like, from what? From what I wrote in the season finale? (laughs) No, you didn't. You can't. So, (laughs) so it was a very strange thing. So they kind of strung me along for five months and then they call me up and tell me I'm fired. But the people who call me aren't the people I work for. Wow. So then I was like, whoa, that's weird. So where's my termination paperwork? And they wouldn't send termination paperwork. And I was like, this is just surreal. So then I mm. thought I'm just going to sit back and wait for a minute and see what drops off. Next thing I know, the funeral parlor scene starts going viral and they're retweeting it and posting about it and telling right. people. And so here's the key part of this story. I've been in the Writers Guild for 25 years. I'm tenured. So I know other writers around town. But Chick Eggley didn't know that. So he's yeah. running around the other writers around town talking about how Brian Fuller, and Michael Green messed up American gods. They never should have set up a Nancy as angry. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like the way I played it. It's to this It's to that. So he's just bumping gums all around town, talking to people i know known for 25 years. Wow. And they're coming back telling me what he's saying, mm. but I got no reason to attack that man. He hasn't said it directly to me and he, he won't mm. speak to me. And the studio and the network are telling me you good. <laughs> You are writing, Mister Nancy. You will be a producer. Of course, we're not getting rid of you. We're good. So that's kind of how it went down. Until finally, it was. You know, I got a phone call. So what I said in my video was what I had been told. He writes from Mm. a black male perspective. He Mm. thinks he is black.
1: Mm.
2: (laughs) Straight up, Black Panther t-shirts. Rachel, you know, like (laughs) the whole Black
0: Panther. You're talking about Mar- Marvel Black Panther t-shirts, not... Oh, not no, no. No,
2: Huey. 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 Oh, Huey,
0: Huey. Huey
2: Black Panther t-shirts. So like, he's, he's straight up.
0: Like, he wasn't doing Wakanda, like...
2: No, no, no. I can see did. him showing up in, in the writer's
0: room, like... <laughs>
2: dude, dude thinks he is the blackest dude in the game, like hats style the way he carries himself he's right. from Boston this is a Boston right. white dude right and he's written on some pretty white shows oh yes absolutely hmm. he's he's very you know Hemlock Grove and all that so what I thought was strange was that there was no black people hello Paloma uh, hello. oh it's another one <laughs> yeah Whoa. twice yes hi hey. How hey. hello, hi hi did hi. you come down to say hello did. All right, I'll be finished oh, in a few minutes. She's gorgeous.
1: Hmm? Oh, oh, you definitely blessed the thank, beautiful thank children. Oh, oh, is,
2: Daddy,
1: thank. my
2: money fell out. I'm yes, I'm aware that your money fell out. Thank you for, for <laughs> letting me know. I got it. So It's one of the, the greatest parts
0: of doing it at home. I don't like doing it like this, but we get to see your family. That's great.
2: I, yeah, listen, man, those are, those are the ones. <laughs> but Aww. It was just crazy to watch that play itself out. But what was really crazy to me that there was a studio a network and a cast full of black people and people of color who were not willing to stand up and call this dude out for being a culture vulture, (laughs) particularly on a show that was so multicultural for suddenly him to be telling you, this is how it's gonna work and I'm gonna decide this. I'm like, we established these characters before you got here. Mm-hmm. At least at least be respectful enough for human beings to have a conversation with them and to allow them to be in the discourse. Whether you keep the character or not keep the character is not the point. But mm-hmm. it was coming in, oh, you gonna tell me what black is, and he gonna tell all y'all what it is, and y'all just gonna go along with it? Like right. then then let me do a pushback from this show altogether, because there's simply no way this white dude from Boston could possibly write. These two Muslim gay characters, he knows nothing about what it means to be disenfranchised, nor does he care. Mm -hmm. So that was really, for me, the whole of it all. You know, you try and behave in those situations above board. But I have two daughters that I have no intention on allowing to walk into that situation and be treated like Mm -hmm. second class citizens. So, frankly, he chose the wrong one. And soon as SAG launched their investigation, I was like... If they can do this to me, if they can fire you two weeks before the season starts, if they can sit upon your rights for four years and not allow you to work, there's only one word for that, and that's chattel slavery. That's what Kurt Flood fought against for professional sports. That's why free agency exists. And free agency mm-hmm. is is truly the creator of black millionaires and billionaires, because without it, they would own each one of those players rights and be able to tell them how they were going to pay them, when they were going to pay them and when they could play and when they couldn't play. They could literally suppress their talent if they did not like them. And, f- and without right. free agency, that was happening.
0: Now, that show is owned by Fremantle, right?
2: Yes. Freeman, And that's
0: the same company that Gabrielle Union had the issue with. I think it's important to note that
2: that's her exactly issues right. of having
0: a, a toxic workplace was very similar to yours.
2: Gabrielle Union said that. Um, uh, let's see. Tiffany Haddish has had mm-hmm. had her issues. Uh, Nick Cannon has come forth mm-hmm. and had his issues. Michaela Cole, uh, British actress who does the show Chewing Gum, laid out at the 2018 Edinburgh Film Festivals. not only her allegations, but her sexual abuse at the hands Mm. of these people in this company. And you got to keep in mind, man, these are the people who gave us The Apprentice. Yes. You got to keep in mind that they knew that there was a lot of dirt in 45's closet at that time. Yeah. They got the tapes, huh? They got the tapes. (laughs) They got the tapes. They they got 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 the nigger tapes. They
0: got <laughs> right. all the tapes,
2: okay? Right. And obviously, I understand they would not wish to undermine the democracy by releasing them, but mm-hmm. uh, they should. It's safe to, to be Tom, said, but he was yeah, protected Tom Arnold though said,
0: Yeah, Tom Arnold said he got a copy of the tapes. We need to press Tom Arnold. To, to, Tom Arnold needs to work for the people. You know, he, he married Roseanne Barr,
1: so now he needs to make up for that by releasing <laughs> the tapes. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Rel Howery was just speaking outside of the laugh factory about the same thing and about taking this movement and how everyone is on black lives matter and everyone is realizing their privilege and put it into Hollywood as well, because they're still not black hairstylists. They're still not black writers. they're still not black casting directors and they're making these black shows and they have all white white writers rooms. And these things also need to be changed. Well, if you're not a
2: part of the union, you can't get the job. And so in every diversity movement that has preceded this movement, everybody's had good intentions. But if you have to hire from the guild and the guild is over 90 percent white, what are you going to do? Yeah. So, you know, it's for me, it's really about this. In every city and every town, there are so many young entrepreneurs, talented storytellers that don't have the infrastructure, don't have the know how, know how and don't have the mentorship to get them through the system. If we spend our time and energy to go realize them, pluck them out of that and help nurture them, then you would Mm -hmm. get those storytellers and those storytellers would be more prolific. But we have to make a concerted effort to do that, just like we have to understand that the guy on the corner that you're afraid of is a trauma victim that hasn't Mm -hmm. been treated that came from another trauma victim often who hasn't been treated. Look at it the same way you look at white housewives who take too many pills. You just need to get them help. I mean, they're not drug addicts. They're just Mm -hmm. women who are going through a lot of stress and postpartum and what have you. And all that's true. Not to diminish what women go through in any way. All that's true. Women's health is a disaster in this country. All that's true. But when Mm -hmm. we see black women, we act like what women's health? What are you talking about? That don't matter.
0: Right, right, right. Um, it's interesting that your daughters both came to visit you while you were on our show, and I really, <laughs> really love that. You said to me when I did your show something that's very that resonated with me. You said, at this stage in your career, you are no longer interested in proving that you can act. You only want to do projects that can make the world better for your daughter. And you just said that again when you were talking about your situation with Fremantle in this show. Break that down a little further.
2: I've been listening to Representation Matters, Diversity Matters now for a very, very long time. But my my battle is to connect my people and my people are, are not just. Blackness isn't just what it is in North America. It's in Africa, it's in the Caribbean, it's in Cayman, it's in Bahamas, mm-hmm. it's all. it's in Turks and Caicos. So when I look at the entire Black Diaspora, and I look at the Asian part of the Black Diaspora often in those islands because we co-mingled and worked together. What I see is a stories that never get told. So mm-hmm. I'm looking for characters like Oliver Tambo, the architect yes. who dismantled apartheid. Yes, I, you I played a tell... character in, in Madiba with with Lawrence Fishburne. We should exactly. people. But keep keep going. I, I want that character connects me to an African continent of people who are looking. To see people who look like themselves and who speak like themselves. So I'm not just trying to service blackness on the American side. I'm trying to service the whole of blackness in my work as an actor. And I want to do that because I don't want them to be victims and put into a box of blackness that says yeah. you're pretty black girl. So this is how you need to behave. <laughs> no, you Mark. define as an artist how you need to behave. And, and like you, Tali, because I came out of the Nina Simone James Baldwin school, those were my... Those were my angels who helped Mm -hmm. me when things were dark. That's right. And and helped me understand how to focus growing up, going to college in the citadel of the Confederacy with a clear understanding of what it meant to be invisible and have people just look through you. Right, (laughs) Um, right. You know, and also to realize I wasn't invisible if there was a problem or if there were wealthy people around. I was a clear and present danger. And learning all those things that my parents taught me to disarm those components, if, if I don't look to empower my daughters for them to understand all of those little nuances mm-hmm. and for them to be able to have the infrastructure to take those nuances and push it forward and teach themselves, if we're not really each one teach one, if we're not, you know, and we going to go on back to Pope Righteous teachers on this? Right, right. Oh, shit. Yeah. Shout out so, to Wise Intelligence. Intelligent, yeah. Father
1: Yes, please.
2: So... Mm-hmm. I look at how that music formed a huge part of my identity as a black man, as Chuck D did, when I didn't know what to do with that energy.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: now I'm just trying to be a part of that energy moving forward, but I'm trying to do it on behalf of the women that raised me and the women that I'm raising. Um, and that means that for me, if you're a black man who's not fighting for black women's rights, then that's just something fundamentally wrong with what's Thank going you. on. Because you got to understand that as, as, as we're hunted Mm -hmm. so that they can prey upon. Mm -hmm. It's a system. Hunt us, destroy us, break us, prey upon them. Prey upon them, right? Yes. And my thing is, I I don't... And that's where it gets dicey, right? Because I'm like, I, I don't... I don't care about anything else other than you're still preying upon the women that raised me. You're preying upon the women that I, that I you know, I, at least for my, I love. And let me be clear. I'm an equal opportunity employer. I have dated women all over. You know, my ex is a white lady. I'm, I've made, right. I've, I've made these journeys, be they mistakes or not. I'm not sure yet. But, but I, right. I know, I know ultimately though, I know that the core of where I came from and I know that the people who raised me are still alive today. Right. I know that, and I know that they're the people that wrap their arms around me when when things are broken, yeah. uh, and I know that uh, that they're the people, no matter what their fallacies are, no matter what their problems are, they're the people who I want to see carry on and survive. And I think that's that's a worthwhile fight. And 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 we have not been good stewards. We have not been good teachers to young people. We we that's have right. we have abandoned them, and now we're blaming them, and that ain't right. That's so, right. So yeah, I, you know that ain't right. That's
0: right. Um, Now, I want to thank you publicly because a lot of people don't know that you were part of a collective that I formed when I went down to Ferguson uh, for the uprising to support the life of Mike Brown when he was murdered by that cop. I raised a lot of money and I was scared by the amount of money I raised because I raised over one hundred thousand dollars. And so I wanted to form a committee of people that I trusted from all different parts of, of activism, community culture. Of, and um and you were one of the first people to join it, so I thank you for helping me with that with the action support committee, and I appreciate you. And then in in this new uprising when George Floyd was murdered, we got back on the emails, we got back on it, and that's kind of why we got back in touch. I love the exactly. fact that I could get in touch with you through activism, and and I got your email too about the other thing that you you you, yes. you, you wanted yeah. me to build build on. But um, you live what I found very beautiful and interesting about you is that you were you were a fixture in Hollywood, but you don't live in Hollywood. You live in Wilmington, South Carolina. And you're doing activism to me is think locally, act globally. And you're doing Mm. very, very important activism work surrounding the mayor, right? And surrounding tell me about what's going on in Wilmington.
2: So in Wilmington, North Carolina, there's a professor. His name is Mike S. Oh, North Adams. Carolina. I said
0: South, South Carolina. Please, Forgive
2: me. Please, please. There's a lot of Wilmington, so that's an easy <laughs> <Yeah>. mistake. <laughs> Truly. So, yeah, but I,
0: but I, I I visited there. I did. Not, did we do a show? So yeah, we did.
2: How dare you <laughs> insult these fine peoples? Um, yeah. This guy, you know, it's an interesting thing. So. In 2000, I guess, early, late 1999, 2000, this guy, uh, Mike S. Adams, turned in a resume to the University of North Carolina Wilmington. They never fact checked it. They hired him. Mm. And by 2001, he was harassing LGBTQ plus students, black students, Muslim students, female students who didn't hold his point of view about the, how you should worship a white male God. And this guy has torturized, you know, just terrorized people online, death threats, cyberbullying, mm. the whole nine for the last 19 years. And he's been protected by, you know, whomever the chancellor was, uh, the city mayor, uh, the former governor of North Carolina who put together that HB2 bathroom law that was super controversial and sent so many businesses leaving North Carolina. That group of people who have that worldview have allowed this man to be a teacher here in, at UNC Wilmington now for 20 years. And wow. He's made incredibly vile and racist and, and, and just hurtful comments on his social media and Twitter and all that. And like so many of those cowards, uses uh, freedom of speech and uses this Republican, conservative, neo-Confederate group with money to give him lawyers and whatnot to, to, to fight the system. So he won a landmark case against the university to get tenure. So the system has protected him. So mm-hmm. for me, if, if you think my daughters are second-class citizens, there's just no possible way you can educate That's them. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And if the chancellor believes that and the governor believes that and the city manager believes that, then all y'all got to go. Yep. Mm-hmm. So my work right now in Wilmington is about that. You know, Wilmington is an interesting city because this was a black city. Um... The black press, as we know it today, came out of two papers in Wilmington that were both burned to the ground. But the black press that started discriminating, distributing uh, uh, news around black people, black issues and black businesses, that, that came in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. And a coup d'etat happened here where they came in. White supremacists came here. They beheaded the duly elected black officials, put their heads on posts all through downtown as a warning to others who might stand up and took this city. Mm
1: -hmm. That is
2: the history of Wilmington, North Carolina. They, they did that before Tulsa. Mm -hmm. So I understand what the roots of it are. Uh, I understand that those systems are still in place and I need them to understand that uh, whomever previously was giving you a walk. I wish them the best, but there's just no. no way I can allow my children right. to be educated in the education system that has those types of individuals within it. My children don't need to be running around being scared while I pay money for a private school or public education, mm-hmm. either or my taxpayer dollars. They don't need to be afraid. You need to be afraid. That's right. Yep. Make races scared again. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So I'm like, I know that other people are scared to stand up and they've got a lot of reasons to do that. And see, that's my black privilege right there. I'm privileged. <laughs> I get the privilege to stand up.
1: <laughs> Amen. Because you,
2: you can't take the job from me. So I'm not asking people who are going to lose their job to stand up. I understand, sister. I understand, brother. I get it. Okay? But me and people who are like me, who have privilege, who are not a slave to the system like that, either you are or you aren't. Right. That's right. Yeah. Uh,
1: you and Talib made music together, Reverse the Hate. Can you tell me a little yeah. bit about that Project and how did you know that you wanted Talib to collab on that with you?
2: That's easy. Look, Talib has (laughs) always been one of the most prolific voices of of the black male experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And his discussion of the black male experience has never been relegated in a way that it pushed you away on religious aspects or it pissed you, it didn't push you away even if you were white. It was it's the poetry of it. But, you know, Tali Kweli is a soul artist. So if you listen to his music and you listened to get high, the, the choirs, the structure, the gospel is mm-hmm. to move you, It's to move you. Mm-hmm. And so when I thought about what I wanted a song to be, I was like, I need an artist that has moved me that way. That has, mm-hmm. that has taken me from a state of, I'm not sure what I'm gonna do, taken control of me and made me go into that state of action. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, that's what I want. That's the sound I want. And I know who can do that. So my first thing was, I'm gonna call Talib see if he will jump on, you know what right. I mean? you know, Maybe most, you know, maybe black thought. I mean, that was really, right. and, and there's a, a, a beautiful artist out of St. Louis, Manny Strings. Um, who is a violinist and uh, she came in and did the last verse and just, you know, you know, she makes you cry uh, because Mm -hmm. she really talks about it from a black woman's perspective. And, And for me, that, that record was really just about trying to heal part of what those wounds felt like because so much of music coming out of the mainstream machine just didn't feel like they wanted to talk about it.
0: People don't even know that you make music like that. So I, I think I appreciate you asking me to be on that. that. So I listened to it recently. We talk about not being able to breathe in that record. Mm-hmm. We say I can't breathe in that record because yeah. of Eric Garner. And yeah. um, the the hook uh, samples or, uh, samples. Tupac talk about yeah. the president sending in troops because people are yeah. riding in the streets.
2: That's right. Tupac, we yeah. was on
0: it in 2014. Tupac was on it 20 years before us. You know what Exactly. What I mean? and, yeah, man. Which is Here why we, I was uh, like, look
2: at this. Here we are. Mm -hmm. 2020 yeah 2020 here here we are and look this is a moment they're all moments no matter how far we're moving forward incrementally Mm -hmm. in these moments we are moving forward in them and Mm -hmm. for me the mere fact that suddenly there's a fear there's a fear the way people fear being called Mm anti-semitic now being racist carries that oh no 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 not me and Mm -hmm. it didn't carry that before it used to be oh he's racist and it was like
0: When people get more upset at being called racist than they do it. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, people people get more upset at being accused of racism or hearing about racism than they do That's about right. actual racism. That's um, right. Yes, yeah. And that record spoke to that um, uh, early. I want We only have a couple more questions. and I appreciate your time, brother. Um, when I was talking about your films, I forgot to mention when we talked about your work in Mad TV, you got famous in Mad TV because of Impressions. But yeah. part of the reason you got famous. But, man, double take, man. You did an impression of Eddie Griffin
2: the whole movie. <laughs> the whole movie.
0: <laughs> Whose idea was that?
2: <laughs> man, I couldn't listen. And it was brilliant, too. I was like, look, I don't look like Eddie Griffin. Eddie Griffin doesn't look like me. That's but right. the whole premise of the movie is that if you do a double take, mm-hmm. and once I got out of my own way, I was it's like, like, act. That could work. <laughs> it's, it's like Ralph
0: Ellis and Invisible Man stuff. It's like, yes. you know, yeah, as a, as a janitor, I can't be seen as a black man, but I put on a suit and it's a different thing. Um, exactly. Very, very interesting. Underrated Exactly. Film. Another thing, I've I heard you refer to yourself as the mayor of Comic-Con. And when I mentioned uh, The Flash on your podcast, you got very excited. So tell me about your relationship <laughs> with comic books and, um, and, and just being... What I've heard you describe as a 14-year-old fangirl.
2: Look, man, I, <laughs> I am a 14-year-old fangirl. I stand by that. <laughs> I get excited because I came into this business as a fan. Right. And when I, I
0: first met you, you was writing a graphic
2: novel that came out. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Tainted Love. I, I am a mm-hmm. fan. That, that's just the mm-hmm. truth of the matter I feel like everybody in Hollywood is really fans you saw it you got inspired and you were like yo I want to do that mm-hmm. and then you get a little fame on you and things start going well in your life and suddenly you got some swag and you don't remember that part of what it was anymore and I kind of never wanted to forget that because it feels like it pulls me away from mm-hmm. where I came from I came from being a fan so I have always tried to celebrate that and being a fanboy, you can't really do that there's a uh, a swag that needs to go with it but being a fangirl you, ah! you, right <laughs> <in.
1: laughs>
2: you have all the feelings all the emotions you know and, and, and that's what Star Wars was for me you know I mean when I when right. I finished that film I was celebrating like that I saw myself represented I saw Billy D. Williams I was like yo right. I'm, I'm in he the game right on. now yes <laughs> I'm like what is going on you know I mean more of him right. more of that right so right 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 that's that's how it hit me as a young man. I just never wanted to let that go. And so as I got more famous in Hollywood and as Hollywood starts to do what it is and you're around yes men and sycophants and people telling you all this, I just was like I want to step away from that and step back into where I came from. And no uh, doubt, no doubt. And, <laughs> and that's
0: it's good background noise. We love
2: it. She wants yeah, to so be that, a star. Is, she is a star. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. That's She's right. made it clear. Um, but so that's that's for me <laughs> where I got into fandom. And when I did Sleepy Hollow, I'd never had the digital tools to do any of that. I'd always, the first time I went to Comic-Con is because I was on Mad TV, And then Sergio Aragones, who was one of my favorite artists, invited me to come down to Mm Comic-Con. And I, you know, we parked across the street. There wasn't nobody down there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Right, (laughs) Comic-Con was a different thing back then. It was a different thing back then. So that was my introduction was like that into the real bowels of what it was. So when Sleepy Hollow happened, And I could go online and and interact with fans in real time and live tweet. It sort of really pulled me back into what that felt like years ago. And I just sort of gave over to that and was like, if I'm going to do this, then I want to be in fandom, but not Mm -hmm. as a celebrity. I want to be in Mm -hmm. fandom as a fan.
1: Mm. And so
2: that was really kind of what I did on Sleepy Hollow was really talk about how I was entering fandom as a fan. And fortunately, I got accepted. And so I wasn't just talking about the show I was on. I started talking about all the stuff that I loved. Mm-hmm. And that's really what led me through fandom. And I, for lack of a better word, married people at Comic-Con. I built the chapel and married people because... you're the man. <laughs> uh, and also, I wanted to celebrate what it's about. And, and here's what right. I love about Comic-Con. In that environment, there's, there's not been any race war, bigotry, craziness. The only... Violence has happened is somebody with the pen slipped and fell and stabbed somebody else with the pen. And most of the people, <laughs> too, that, too many pens, right? Too many pens, right? All right. Like he as much as I hate to say, nothing like NBA All Star Weekend, <laughs> when, when all sorts of madness jumps off. But what's, right. what's all beautiful? you need is a, all you need is a pocket protector. All you need <laughs> is. You're good, right? But that that community sees itself as a disenfranchised group because they're the people who are being made fun of for dressing up like that and for loving that. And they met their friends and wives. It's a, it's a culture born out of their love of a thing. And so I wanted to celebrate that love by marrying people who, who met in those circumstances because to me, that's yeah. really what it's about. And that's what I love about that community is that they really do function like a disenfranchised group and that is mm-hmm. fascinating to me because they function with a natural distrust of Hollywood. And they are the most powerful fan base in the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, those those comic book movies make mo- more money than any any movie. So, yeah, they're very powerful. Um, yeah. Now, uh, when we had Patrice Calores on, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, she said that she id as, she identifies as an abolitionist. And I have a lot of friends who in 2020, especially now, identify as abolitionist. Definitely. Um Let's talk a little bit before you get out of here about Harper's Ferry raid and this project you got going on. James McBride. James McBride is a great author. I sell the great. book "Good Lord Bird" in my bookstore, AkiraBooksQualityClub.com. So shout out to James McBride. But you're attached to this project. You, Ethan Hawke, david Diggs who's the homie. You know what I'm saying? Like, tell me about your work
2: on "Good Lord Bird." So obviously it's a show about an abolitionist, a white abolitionist who was a man of Mm -hmm. God and believed that God was going to protect him in the race war against the diabolical Mm -hmm. white race that was enslaving uh, black people. John Brown. And he staged a raid on Harper's Ferry in order to stage that raid. He needed, obviously, the help of of black people and the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really got fascinated. And as James McBride explores in the book with this character called the Railman. Uh, and the railman is the guy who works on the railroad, who runs the train. He really is the guy who uh, does the work and has to fill the train up with water because those trains had to be filled up every, I think every two or three miles they had to stop. So the tracks were next to the water. And because of that, that's also how he loaded the cars up with slaves and was moving them up north as they made those stops. So you would be picking up people along the way. But the incredible part about it it was they weren't actually on the train. They were on a wagon that was following the train. Mm -hmm. So, And I would say the most powerful part about it is how when you think about how they disseminated information, they didn't have any of this technology. And it took a letter three, four days to get up the coast. And then you had to get it in the right hands in order to get it out to the people on the coast. So the people who really were down in the movement, the people who moved it forward, were the numbers men. Because they saw everybody who was buying the number and they would tell you what it is you needed to know that was Mm -hmm. on the wire. Mm -hmm. And so the chance to to bring that element of our history alive because we talk about, you know, apartheid and and Nelson Mandela and we talk about the civil rights movement, but we never talk about the architects and the infrastructure for how people got things done Mm -hmm. and we can still utilize their brilliance today because they were fighting the same machine and they figured a way around it. And we forget all that and think we need to rebuild. We we don't need to build a new infrastructure. A lot of this work has been done by, by our forefathers and they laid the framework for us, you know. So right. that project was, you know, for me, important simply because I had never heard that before. No one had... And I was like wait 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 what 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 happened he, <laughs> how did who it? did what to what happened right huh you know right. and, and also to see that character and see what that man's journey was which was three of his kids had been grabbed he only had en- he has four he only had enough money to get three out john brown is coming everything's about to go haywire and his family's being sold which means When that happens, the white people would send all the slaves because they've now learned to be rebellious to another plantation.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So suddenly his family was about to be dispersed. So his desperation was even though he was friends with the mayor, even though he had a position of power, even though he had learned how to function in the machine, he was still ultimately fighting to protect his family. Mm -hmm. Right. For me, that that is George Floyd. Right. The, right. That, that is all we're talking about. It's the same yeah. thing, the pressures of the system and how it confounds the situation to create a, a, a an environment of terror and an environment mm. of trauma where you make reckless decisions on behalf and in the name of trying to save those that you love.
0: Mm. Craziness. Man, well, thank you for being a part of that project. Thank you for all the work you do. You helped to inspire me. Like, you, I've heard you speak about what the stereotype of blackness was when you first came into business and how it was important for you to not lean into the gangster stereotypes that were happening in black yeah. Hollywood at the time. And you carved out a lane for yourself, brother, and you've remained prolific. And man, it's my honor and my pleasure to know you. Ladies and gentlemen, the People's Party gives it up for Orlando Jones.
2: Thank you man. Woo-hoo! Thank okay. man Thanks,
1: Chauncey. you. Man. Thank so you. Man. <laughs> Thank you man. Thank you deep, deep bows man,
2: deep bows. <laughs>